1: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Feignor, Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa, and I'm co-host of the channel along with Robert Talese, Alexis McLeod, and Sarah Tyson. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books in a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Matthew Duncombe, Assistant Professor of Philosophy at the University of Nottingham. His new book, Ancient Relativity Plato, Aristotle, Stoics, and Skeptics, is just out from Oxford University Press. As a matter of basic metaphysics, we classify individuals in terms of their relations to other things. For example, a parent is a parent of someone, a larger object is larger than a smaller object. The nature of relativity, the question of how things relate to other things, is a topic that winds its way throughout the history of philosophy to the present day. In his book, Duncombe considers ancient views of relativity from Plato, Aristotle, skeptics, particularly Simplicius, and the Stoics, particularly Sextus Empiricus. He defends the view that these thinkers shared a common basic position, which he calls constitutive relativity. This is the idea that relativity is a matter of the relative being a certain way rather than, for example, having a certain predicate true of it, or of having a certain feature. He argues that this reading enables us to make sense of such arguments as Parmenides' main objection to Plato's theory of the forms, and that it comes into its own in its role in the skeptics' opposition to dogmatic belief. Let's turn to the interview. Uh, Hello, Matthew Duncombe. Welcome to New Books and Philosophy. Thank you very much. Um I'm, I'm very pleased to be talking to you about your new book Ancient Relativity Plato Aristotle Stoics and Skeptics um which is a very nice departure into ancient metaphysics from our current situation with the coronavirus. Well, yeah. Um, <laughs> It's like, you know, let's let's do something completely different for a change. Um it, it is different. <laughs> yes, it definitely is. Um, which is which is a good thing, I think, in these circumstances in particular. Um, before we delve into, you know, deep dive into metaphysics, uh, of Plato, Aristotle, and so forth, um, uh maybe you could tell us a bit about yourself and your interest in, in this particular topic and then how the book kind of came apart, came came uh, came about. Sorry.
2: Yeah, yeah, sure. Well, first of all, thank you so much for for having me on. I'm a really big fan of the podcast, so it's it's great to be on. Um, I'm yeah. So I'm an assistant professor in the philosophy department at the University of Nottingham, and really, this is my first sort of big monograph project. Uh, before I was at, at Nottingham, I had a postdoc in Durham, a British Academy postdoc, which really was the sort of meat of when this this kind of book was written uh, when I was up there in, uh, in Durham. And before that I had a sort of separate postdoc in the Netherlands where I was working on the project on ancient logic. And before that I did my PhD in classics, um, at Cambridge. And that was, yeah, that was kind of really where I wrote that, that was kind of really the genesis of this project because my PhD project was on relativity. In fact, in, in Plato or relative terms in Plato as I was thinking of it then. And the PhD project really uh, doesn't have a huge amount in common with what ended up in the book, even though the first sort of three chapters of the book cover Plato. I've changed a lot of the arguments and a lot of the ways of thinking about relativity from, from the PhD, including in Plato. Uh, but yeah, that was really the genesis of, of where these kind of ideas, this, this idea to work on ancient relativity came from. And that was suggested by my kind of supervisor originally. Um, I got into... Maybe we should say something about how I got into ancient philosophy because my background was really in, in contemporary philosophy. My undergraduate degree was in contemporary philosophy, and I was very interested in analytic philosophy, in Frege in particular, and sort of found my way into uh, ancient philosophy through thinking about Frege's kind of Platonism and thereby looking at Plato and the kinds of arguments that come up in Plato, like the third man argument that are kind of relevant to analytic metaphysics. Um, and that's really how I sort of got, got into to ancient philosophy. And yeah, eventually just that became my main interest. And I switched and moved in the classics department and, and wrote my PhD on ancient philosophy.
1: Cool. Um, most people who who look at Platonism, you know, in mathematics or whatever, uh, d- don't go to Plato, <laughs> which is interesting. Um, they just sort of take on this uh, otherworldly metaphysics um but in any yeah. case um so we're talking about relativity and yeah. you know for a lot of people today obviously relativity is is uh it's you know physics in physics you know einstein's relativity and that's not what we're talking about so maybe you could say first uh what is relativity generally
2: yeah so i mean i take relativity just to be the phenomenon that things relate to things so there are brothers there are parents there are larger things and smaller things um there's some very important philosophical concepts like knowledge seem to be relational concepts so relativity is just this very general catch-all term for this phenomenon that things relate to things and of course I guess physical theories of relativity one prominent feature of those physical theories is that they make use of this fact that things relate to things but there's nothing proprietary I guess about physical theories of relativity that's not really what I'm talking I don't certainly don't think Plato has a theory of relativity in the sense of Einstein's theory of relativity or anything like that. Um, what I mean by yeah ancient relativity is just this this idea that ancient philosophers have a grip on this phenomenon and they try to deal with it in kind of philosophically interesting ways. Um, yeah, so that's kind of where where I take relativity to 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 me. Yeah, that's what I kind of take relativity to to mean.
1: Okay, and how do you how do you distinguish that from you know just relations or? I mean, there are different, there, you know, there are various metaphysical issues in this area. You know, one is the relativity, another is the whole metaphysics of relations, another is the whole metaphysics of relational properties, right? Um, or whether those two things are different or the same, right? So how how does your focus here distinct uh, differ from... Uh, say metaphysics of relations and or relational properties
2: yeah so maybe i'll just say a a quick bit about the difference between relations relatives and relational properties because really i'm so really the difference is one way to think about the difference is focusing on what the difference between ancient philosophers and the way contemporary philosophers think about this phenomenon of relativity right so you might think contemporary philosophers come at the phenomenon of relativity that things relate to things by thinking about relations that is the thing that relates two things. So Matt, I'm a brother, uh, my brother, Pat, and my brother, Dom, we're all related by the is brother of relation. And contemporary philosophers tend to think about relativity in terms of the relations, the things that do the relating. You can almost picture those kind of chemistry ball and stick models, you know, where you have uh, one ball representing one atom, another ball representing another atom and a stick between the two, connecting them, and that connection, that's the relation, something like that. Um, whereas ancient philosophers tend to come at this phenomenon of relativity from the point of view of looking at the relata or the relatives, that is, the things that are related. So it's not that they don't think that there are relations, rather it's that they focus on analysing this phenomenon of relativity by thinking about the things that are related rather than the things that do the relating. Um, And I just use the term relatives for those things that are related. Some people, as as I say, use the term relata, but, you know, Why introduce unnecessary Latin when you don't have to? Um, (laughs) And then the third thing you mentioned, relational properties, just very briefly, are the properties that you might have in virtue of relations you bear. So um, being a husband is a relation that I have. It's a one-place relation that I have in virtue of bearing the is-married-to relation to my wife, something like that. Mm
1: -hmm. Good. Okay. So um, you cover, you know, or at least uh, the... The, the people that you look at, uh, the texts that you look at, are, you know, over a period of something like seven centuries, right? Um, so it's a, it's a huge amount, and you kind of pick out, you know, two major philosophers, Plato and Aristotle, and then two uh, movements, um, although particular people within those movements as well, Um and you you argue that that all of them are are unified by a basic commitment to what you call a constitutive relativity, a particular a particular way of of explaining or understanding what relativity is. Um, so, can you can explain what this is and maybe contrast it with a you know major opposing perspective? Yeah. Sure. So, I mean,
2: constitutive relativity sounds like a big grand thing, but really it's quite a simple idea. You're starting from the point of view of, if you're starting from the point of view of what's a relative, you can ask questions about it like, what is it to be a brother? Uh, What is it to be a parent? What is it to be a larger thing? And constitutive relativity is the idea that the answer to that kind of question is uh, in terms of what constitutes being a brother? What constitutes being a parent? What constitutes being a larger thing? It's an answer to the, what is it to be a larger thing kind of question, right? And the answer is going to be in terms of a smaller thing. So the, uh, the thought is that constitutive relativity is an answer to a sort of question about the nature of a relative or the nature of, of relatives, an answer to, if you like, an answer to the, what is it kind of question. And these kind of answers to these kinds of questions really have to pick out they have to do two things they have to pick out all of the items in question, so all of the larger things, and they have to explain in virtue of what they're larger things they have that feature so and you can think about the larger thing is larger than the smaller thing well that's going to do both of those jobs it's going to tell you what all the larger things are all of the larger things are larger than a smaller thing, and it's going to explain in virtue of what those things are larger i e it 's because they have this is larger than relation to the smaller thing. So that seems pretty, and that can get pretty weird because we're thinking in terms of this ancient perspective of like asking about the natures of relatives rather than a kind of contemporary perspective where we're thinking about relations primarily to analyze this phenomenon of relativity. Mm-hmm. So that's, I think, does that make sense as the constitutive view?
1: Sure. I mean, to, to get us started, sure. Yeah,
2: yeah. Um, um...
1: So one one of the questions, I mean, you've already raised, you know, one particular uh individual, as we would put it, um uh can can be uh, is 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 a, is a relative is is multiply relative or is is lots of relatives at the same time. Uh I'm not sure because one of the things you say is that um uh, one of the weird things about this is the idea that, um, it's a very fine grained ontology, right? So there's, there's, you know, an object, you know, what we would say today is there's some sort of an individual, an object, um, and it has say lots of relational properties or something, uh, or it stands in lots of different relations. Um, and that, that ontologically, that's just, you know, one item with lots of, you know, features um and as i understand your view uh the idea that that the ancients um defended uh or or held implicitly in some cases is that um uh no 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 there's just there's lots of objects there there's a a there's something that uh is a brother and there's something that is a husband and there's something that is the sun and there, you know, and so on and so forth. Can can you explain that? Because it's it is very um odd. It means mm. you know, it's like, how do we how, what are we referring to, right? Yeah.
2: Yeah, I mean this is a really good this is a really good question. I think that this uh this is this kind of goes to this is a point that the constitutive view has, you know, it's difficult to explain why you would why you would have this view. If you're coming from a kind of contemporary perspective where you think well what are the concrete objects well matthew is a kind of concrete object and he's a kind of thing that bears all these different relations he bears the his brother of relations the husband of relations the son of relation and so on to so a bunch of different things um and then the constituent view comes along and says no no actually what's going on here is a bunch of co-located relatives a brother and that's not the same thing as the father that's not the same thing as the son that's not the same thing as the husband. Right but it's just that this father this son and this husband are all happen to be collocated um or something like that yeah and i yeah. think that that's that's a that's a tricky that's a tricky question and i think it i think it's a broader question though for the ontologies of plato aristotle stoics and so on because on any ontological pitch you're going to have to say something about how properties not just relational properties but how relatives and uh you know qualities and locations and somehow, and so, and so on, somehow coalesce into one particular spatiotemporal re- region. So I just want to say, I'm going to defer that question to, however, you're going to answer that second, broader question, how these objects kind of co-locate and coalesce. The story for that is going to be different depending on, your think- on the thinker. And I just want to defer that to, to, to that kind of prior, bigger question. So whatever answer right. you give to that question about how will these things come together, I'm just going to piggyback on that, I guess.
1: <laughs> right, right. Although uh, it does seem that um, they will not be committed to a bare particular.
2: Uh, yeah, I think that's, uh, I, I don't know, That's a that's an interesting question about whether any particular ancient philosopher committed to bare particulars. I mean some readings of Plato have him committed to something like bare particulars or because that's how all of these things that are under the kind of participate in the forms kind of get the forms get attached to them or something like that. Um, so I'm not sure how yeah I'm not sure exactly I mean I think there are the possibilities are wide open for 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 any kind of given ancient thinker. I guess Aristotle is going to have something more. Is going to be more committed on that, particularly in the categories with the primacy of primary substance, which maybe we'll talk about a bit more. But primary substances right. seem to be the things that ground uh, other right. features
1: um, in the categories. Right. I guess my, my thought was um, it's certainly consistent with a, a view of you know primary substance or a bare particular or something, but you know in theory you could just have. You know, a a bundle view of some sort, uh, which lacks that round of some sort. Yeah. 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 Precisely. Uh, um. This, yeah. Good. Okay. So, um, uh, maybe we should, since you mentioned the theory of the forms, right? Um. Uh, you know, you, you sort of, you, you go through a number of the, the formal properties of, of constitutive relativity and, and, you know, I, I think you should feel free to introduce those kind of as needed. Um, but, um, uh, in your analysis in, in, in of the Parmenides, right? Um, you argue that, um, he seems to rely on the view of constitutive relativity, um, uh, uh And that you know Parmenides, at least the character Parmenides um in the in the dialogue uh you know raises a difficulty for the theory of the forms that um essentially depends on this idea of you know hey if your if your theory you know presupposes uh constitutive relativity, then your theory of the forms just isn't going to fly right so can can you explain that sort of dialectic there yeah sure so maybe i'll say something about what i what you
2: mentioned the formal features of, of relativity first and then i'll talk about the greatest difficulty is that would that be um, alright if i split sure. it like that so, um just because it's interest, just because it makes sense i's just because you can see all the formal features together and they kind of cohere so one thing that i've played, so is a really good place to start for this because you see all these different features of of constitutive relativity getting worked out in, in the dialogues. And the ones, that, ones, the standard ones that I mention in, in the, the book are exclusivity, that is to say that relatives relate only to each other, reciprocity, which is to say that a relative and its correlative relate to each other. So uh, a parent is correlative to an offspring and an offspring is offspring of a parent. Alio-relativity, which is the idea that a relative relates to something else. So, no relative relates to itself, and Plato's is a bit uncertain about whether that applies to all relatives, but Aristotle is very clear that it does apply to all relatives and then existential symmetry, so this idea that there is no existential priority relation between between correlatives so uh, a just as a larger thing existentially depends on a smaller thing, a smaller thing existentially depends on a larger thing, they exist at all the same times, and they you can see just follows pretty straightforwardly from from constitutive relativity because. If a larger thing is constituted by bearing a relation to a smaller thing, then of course it only bears that relation to a smaller thing. It doesn't bear the same constituting relation to a medium sized thing. Say same with reciprocity Re- relations, just kind of go both ways in that way. Uh, and existential symmetry is easy to see why that follows from constitutive relativity because and reciprocity, because if one thing relates to another, if the larger thing relates to the smaller thing, they both got to, they constitute each other. They've both got to exist at the same times. That's the kind of way that the those formal properties kind of come out, and yeah, they get picked up and relied on in various different bits of uh, dialogues um and there's a lot of kind of argumentation in that part of the book sort of showing how these different assumptions get made in different points in the dialogue um, different dialogues and then on the greatest difficulty yeah this is a this is a fun argument i really so. What's going on at that point in, in the Parmenides is Parmenides has got the younger, a younger Socrates uh, kind of on the ropes, as it were. He's, he's really examining and going in hard against Socrates' sort of uh, theory of forms. And Socrates there is defending, defending this kind of maybe kind of provisional or first draft of the theory of forms or something like that. And these arguments go along, and the famous third man argument is one of the arguments that Parmenides presents against Socrates. But the one that Socrates, that Parmenides flags as the greatest difficulty for the theory of forms is this, idea, is this one to do with relations. And roughly, this is the kind of last one that, that Parmenides goes through. And what he says is, well, look, anyone who thinks about forms, anyone who defends the forms, is going to say that they are... Outer, cath, outer, themselves by themselves, they're somehow separate. But then what about these relational notions? Okay, so it seems like if the forms are separate uh, to our realm, then what about the form knowledge? Can the form knowledge, the uh, say knowledge knows truths, so can the form knowledge know truths in our realm? Seems like Parmenides wants to say no, it can't. And if the form knowledge can't know things in our realm, it seems like the gods can't know things that are going on in our realm. Equally and more problematically for Socrates, um, our knowledge, knowledge of things here, the kind of knowledge that we have, can't know things in the form realm. But of course, one key thing that the forms have to do on the kind of Platonist picture is be objects of knowledge, objects of our knowledge. And so if we can't know things in the form realm, it seems like, well, we're, we're in real trouble. The theory of forms is in real trouble. It can't do the work that it needs to do. Um, so then. What I want to say is somehow the constitutive view of relativity is in the background here, right, because how do you understand this argument? Well, one way that you can understand it is as just saying, Parmenides is just saying, look, there are no relations whatsoever between our realm and the form realm. There's sort of total separation or radical separation, as they call it. And if you think that, really, Parmenides is just begging the question against Socrates against the theory of forms, because the theory of forms is perfectly able to allow some relations between um, forms and participants, in particular, the participation relation, right? Uh, It's just built into the theory of forms. So if you think that Parmenides is advocating or assuming or attributing to Socrates the view that there are no relations between forms and participants, then he's just begging the question against Socrates. So what I want to say is, well, no, it's not that there are no relations whatsoever. It's just that that none of the there aren't any cons, constituting constituting relations that bear between forms and participants, so the form knowledge is constituted by its relation to the form truths, um, and it's not constituted to its relation to truths around in our realm. But that doesn't mean that there are no relations at all between things in the form realm and the form and the part and the realm of participants. And equally, our knowledge isn't constituted by relating to. Um, things in the form realm truths in the form realm but that doesn't mean that there aren't some relations that bear between them so that's how i think the kind of constitutive view is in the background there it makes better sense of how the argument the greatest difficulty argument is supposed to be working
1: does that help okay yeah yeah so so uh, you know participates in operates something like uh, is a brother of
2: right exactly it's a relation rather than a, a, a relative so we're not trying to tell us what the what, what it is what constitutes a participant. Of course, if you were to ask that question, the answer would have to be in terms of, well, a participant is a participant partake participates in what it partakes in, right? So that's going to be the constituting relation for a participant. Um, but it's yeah, but it's not the case that it, it's not the case that those constituting relations compare between the participant realm and the form realm. So it's not that you have total isolation. It's not that you have no relations between the form realms and the participant realm. It's just that you don't get those special constituting relations between them.
1: Mm. So it, it, it almost sounds like uh, the participating relation, there has to be a commitment to that uh, yeah. it, it, in order to, for there to even like be forms.
2: Yeah, Right. exactly. That's true. That is true. Yeah. 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 Um, that's right, yes.
1: Yeah. Maybe there's a chicken and egg issue here. I don't know. <laughs> it's, um,
2: it's a difficult one. I don't think, I mean, it doesn't come up in, so, I mean, you could, I guess you could press that point more into an objection to my reading and say something like, well, okay, but then what do you say about the participation relation? Isn't it that the participants are constituted by their relation to the things they participate in? So they do have these constituting relations and those things they participate in in the forms. So you do have these cross realm consti- consti- constitution relations or something like that is that the thought yeah yeah i think uh i think that is that's a difficult issue uh yeah i'm not really sure how i'm not really sure how i would respond to that other than to say it's not clear that that plato is considering those kinds of cases he really seems more worried about the kind of contentful uh, cases that the, the cases that he's particularly worried about the knowledge cases I think uh, in the in the greatest difficulty. So yeah, maybe he just doesn't consider those cases. But yeah, it's a good it's a it's a good objection.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail, from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to Shopify.com slash system all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
1: Well, let me um I mean, before I before I go on to how Aristotle um revises this. Um kind of stepping back where, I mean, it, it, as we mentioned before, it's it is sort of an odd um odd view, you know, from, from our perspective. Um, and, and you stay explicitly, you know, I'm not defending constitutive relativity. I'm just saying this is a, the best interpretation of the ancients, right? Um, so you make that distinction. Um, uh, but I, I'm sort of wondering what, what do you think might have motivated them to, to hold this sort of bizarre, you know, somewhat bizarre, ontologically bizarre, view, right? Um, I mean, it, it doesn't, I mean, you know, common sense is not the be-all and end-all of everything, but, but it, you know, in general, you know, the, there was a lot of common sense. Of course, Aristotle in particular was always trying to sort of start from common sense before he departs from it, it you know, where he needs is. to, <laughs> right? Um, so, I'm, so I'm just, you know, again, stepping back is is uh, what what sort of you know and again you know the forms are not are not common sense but plato has a number of arguments for them and that's why platonism you know persists as a, as a as a general position so what what do you think you know motivates them to have this bizarre view
2: so this is this is a really good this is a really good question
1: uh
2: and it's not really one that i i if you want my kind of private secret view of what's going on here, <laughs> is that um, I think it's to do with focusing on the, the kind of what is it question, this TSD question that Socrates keeps pressing. Because when, when you want to ask, what is it to be a brother? It seems like the answer's got to be given in terms of the, the correlative and the relationship that a brother bears to a correlative. When you're asking, what is it to be a larger thing? The answer looks like it's gone, going to be given in a, in relation to uh, a smaller thing. Now, if you don't have a great grip on the diff on kind of scope ambiguities, it might look like then you're saying, well, the larger thing is larger than a smaller thing. Not some. It's not the case that every larger thing. And if you're not so clear on the different kind of quantifiers and scope ambiguities, it looks like you might take that to say, well, the larger thing is larger than some generic smaller thing, some intentional object that is a smaller thing. And because that's going to be the case, that's going to be what all larger things have in common. They're larger than a smaller thing. Now we would say, well, yeah, the mistake there is to say that uh, the larger thing is larger than some intentional object or some generic smaller thing. Really the mistake, really what you should say is that each larger thing is larger than some smaller thing. So my brother Pat is larger than me, something like that. Um, but yeah, I don't think that, that I think that the I think that the ancient view is really focusing on that asking that question the what is it question of relatives, and then the answer looks like it's going to be in terms of relation to these intentional objects, and then because you're answering a, a question about the nature of those relatives in terms of the relations to these kinds of intentional correlatives or something like that, that's where you get this this kind of view of this kind of constitutive view because you're just already asking a question about the nature of those relatives so that's my private off the cuff <laughs> the way of of motivating it and setting it up i haven't got like the problem is the textual evidence for that for that reading is is pretty thin there are bits in plato and bits in aristotle where you have this idea of uh, the where the relative precisely what it is the hopper gets invoked um, and I think that's the kind of closest we can come to, to giving a good textually grounded account for that. But I think that, I mean, I think that help, might help to set up the philosophical motivation a little bit more. I mean, some scholars have said, well, they're so, either they've said they're just really confused about this phenomenon to the point where we can't even take it seriously. Uh, that's been a, a fairly common view in the literature. Or people have tried to make sense of of the idea of, yeah, they're trying to make sense of this phenomenon of relativity, but they're not invoking relations at all. They just have, they're, they're so, mistake, they kind of just have monadic properties, one place properties, and they don't have any relational properties at all. And then they've tried to tell a story about how Plato and Aristotle are making sense of relativity just with monadic properties. I don't want to go in either of those routes. I don't want to say they're doing away with relations altogether, nor do I want to say they're totally confused. I want to say their view is, is different and weird, but it's different and weird (laughs) from our point of view, but it is a kind of, it it makes sense to them, I guess.
1: Yeah, there's a coherence to it,
2: yeah. precisely. there's a coherence and a motivation that's comprehensible, even if, as I say, we really don't want to go philosophically for the constitutive view. Um, it, It really does give the best explanation for a lot of the moves that they make and a lot of the assumptions that they seem to be making in various places.
1: Okay, so um, Aristotle, right? So he, yeah. uh, on your reading, also has a has a constitutive relativity view, but it's different from Plato's. Um, yeah, uh, and as as is typical of Aristotle, it's intended to correct certain mistakes in his in his predecessor. Um, can yeah. you can you <laughs> say a bit about about Aristotle's view?
2: Yeah. So really, I I mean, I think the story starts with category seven, so Aristotle in the, in, in the seventh uh, book of the categories devotes the whole book to relatives, um, caprosities he calls them, and what he wants to say, I think the important thing to think here, one important thing to note here is that we're in the context of the categories which has a particular ontology, in, uh, an ontology of uh, primary substances and secondary substances. So I think that that's in, in more, immediately an important departure from from what Plato's doing and Aristotle's really trying to take what I think take Plato's ideas or these assumptions that Plato has been making about relativity make them more explicit in category 7 and fit them into this into this context of the categories ontology. So I think that's roughly the two the two things that are going on that make the categories a bit weird and different compared to Plato. So what are those differences? Well, um, one important difference is this issue of alia-relativity. So that's the, as I, what I call the idea that a relative must relate to something else. Now, in Plato, in the comedies Plato's Socrates seems really unsure about whether all relatives relate to other things or whether some can relate to themselves. And they're considering cases of self-knowledge, which roughly they think of as knowledge of knowledge. And then the question is, well, can there be such a thing as knowledge of knowledge? And they just, they're, they're, they don't really reach an answer. Socrates eventually says, well, maybe some great man will come along and show us the answers to this question. And maybe Aristotle thinks he's that great man, I don't know. But Aristotle certainly responds to this question of alia-relativity and says, well, because he simply defines relatives as things that are of or than or somehow in relation to something else uh, or said to be of or than uh, or somehow in relation to something else in uh, the first sentence of, of Category 7. So he just defines relatives as earlier relatives. And then I guess one thing I want to do in the book or in that chapter on Aristotle is explain why, because it just seems like wh- why would there be this difference? And one thing that you could think, and one thing that constitutive relativity makes sense of is why there might be this difference, because in the categories ontology, everything's got to bottom out in primary substances. This principle is sometimes called the primacy of primary substance or something like that. and It looks like if you have constitutive relatives that relate to themselves, so knowledge of knowledge, it looks like they need not bottom out in primary substances. They need not be related or grounded in primary substances because, well, it seems like knowledge is constituted by its relation to its object. If that object is knowledge itself, then it seems like knowledge is constituted by its relation to itself. And so then it's this free floating thing that doesn't need to be grounded in a primary substance. It can just be grounded in it itself, in its relations to itself. So that's, I think, why Aristotle is really keen that, that there are no aliō relatives, and he just defines relatives that way. In a way that Plato just wasn't because he didn't have the same commitments to the primacy of, of primary substance. So I think that's one way, one really simple way in which Aristotle's kind of correcting, correcting the view. Aristotle then goes on to do a few other things. Um, yeah, make a few more distinctions. Uh, I don't know, should we talk about those?
1: Um well you do you do say that um, you know, a lot of what he's doing there is is developing subclasses of relatives um uh within uh, you know, so in the so there's a number of so in the categories, right? He has the category of relatives. Um, and then in the metaphysics, uh, this is not a different view. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's an elaboration of the view that's, that's first expounded in the categories, at least that's, that you're reading, right?
2: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, I think it's really interesting to talk about the relationship between category seven and metaphysics Delta 15, which is the other big discussion of, of, relatives in in Aristotle. So one thing that's gone on in uh, most of the scholarship on category seven and probably most of the scholarship on relativity at all in ancient ancient philosophy has been on this difference between two definitions that Aristotle raises, uh, two uh, different definitions that Aristotle gives for relatives in category seven. So at the very beginning, he gives that definition I already mentioned, uh, said to be, uh, relatives are said to be what they are of or than, or somehow in relation to something else. And then sort of later on, he sets up a different definition, which is relatives um, are, are the things that somehow relate to something. And it's really unclear why he sets these two different definitions. Well, it's kind of clear why he sets them up, but then exactly the nature and the relationship between those two definitions has kind of been subject to a fair amount of, of dispute. It seems like the reason he sets up that difference is that he wants he has this worry that somehow some... Substances might end up being relatives if the first definition is sufficient. So, if the first definition looks like there are going to be cases where items like my hand will be both a substance and a relative. So, why is it going to be a substance? Well, I'm a substance, the hand is part of me, so the hand is a part of a substance, so the hand is a substance. On the other hand, the hand is part of me, so the hand is of or than something, so it's a relative. But Aristotle thinks, in common with a lot of people around the academy, that no substance can be a relative. So that seems like a problem for him. And he seems to think, it seems to be that the second definition is introduced to resolve this problem. Now, a lot of people have thought that the second definition is just narrower than the first. So the way that Aristotle approaches the problem is to just narrow down the scope of relatives, just make fewer things relatives according to the second definition. So and that under narrower class wouldn't include examples like a hand. What I want to say is something slightly different is that you actually the two definitions are coextensive, but really they're just a difference between the ways of looking at, as it were, looking at a relative. So in the first definition, it's supposed to be kind of schematic, i.e., we're just thinking about these items as relatives. So what's the nature of a relative? Well, it's of or down something. Whereas the second definition, we're asking specifically what the identity of this particular relative is, and what features does it have in virtue of having that identity? So here's a simple example. You might think, um, to set up that contrast, uh, a father is father of sons, something like that. Is that statement true? Well, it depends on whether you're thinking schematically or specifically about the father, because if you're thinking schematically, it seems false. Right, because there just seem to be loads of cases where there are fathers who don't have sons; they have daughters. But taken specifically, well, it depends which father you're thinking about. If you're thinking about me, then it's false because I only have daughters. But if you're thinking about, uh, if you're thinking about some other father, it might be true because my father, for example, only has sons. So that's the difference between the schematic and specific ways of thinking about relatives. Schematic, specific relatives: the identity matters. Schematically, we're just thinking about them as a relative. And that's what I want. Yeah. Should I say something about how that relates to metaphysics, or is that Uh, okay?
1: Well, I mean, you know, complete your your discussion. Yeah.
2: (laughs) Okay. Mm -hmm. So yeah. So very briefly, then there's then this other question in the literature about exactly how metaphysics Delta Fifteen relates to Category Seven, and there's been some worry that Delta Fifteen seems inconsistent at certain points with Category Seven. And basically what I argue in that chapter where I discussed Delta 15 is that once you understand this schematic specific difference that Aristotle's already introduced into category seven, those inconsistencies disappear. You can explain anything that appears inconsistent between metaphysics, Delta 15 and category seven by invoking this, this distinction. Um, yeah. Okay. And then does that make sense? Does that help?
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um so i want to make sure we get to the uh the Stoics and the skeptics um so in the in the 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 for the stoics you you choose uh simplicius as the kind of the representative of of the school um uh so how does how does he uh elaborate uh this idea um and i know you know here i mean in throughout the book and we haven't really mentioned this but you are also responding to various other interpreters right um uh, so, you know, I haven't, I haven't emphasized other readings that people have given where you're opposing their reading. Um, um, so, I mean, but that's, it's up to you to emphasize that or not. Um, but in any case, um, so with the Stoics, um, you know, there seems to be a kind of a standard reading that you're opposing, um, yeah. regarding yeah. relativity. So could you, could you go into that a bit? Yeah. So
2: with the Stoics, um... So, Simplicius is writing a commentary on Aristotle's Category Seven, as it happens, and he's writing, and he's, he's re- he records in the, in the course of this commentary a fair amount of information about Stoic ideas of relativity. But, like, characteristically with Stoics, it's not, uh, you, you just get the views and you don't necessarily get the arguments and the context for the views. So, it can be quite confusing trying to reconstruct exactly why the Stoics might have thought a particular way about relativity. What Simplicius does tell us about the Stoics is that they distinguish two kinds of relativity, um, some which he calls relatives or maybe differentiated relatives. And on the other hand, relatives somehow disposed. And these first sort, these differentiated relatives, the examples are supposed to be things like sweet and bitter, whereas for the relatives somehow disposed, the example is supposed to be father. And Simplicius also tells us like, that the difference between these two, can be seen in terms of how they d- interact with change. So it seems like the differentiated relatives kind of co-change or change together, whatever that means, and the relatives somehow disposed um, allow kind of cases of relative change where the the relative just changes in virtue of changing its relation. So, for example, a you a, a child could go from being uh, a child could go, could become an orphan just because their parents die or something like that. Or well, I could become shorter just because my brother grows, not because I've shrunk, something like that. And that's supposed to be, that's really what Simplicius sort of tells us. Now, one the sort of standard way, the orthodox way of reading this um, goes back to my PhD supervisor, David Sedley. He distinguishes hard and soft relative properties here. and He says, well, um, the relatives somehow disposed are kind of hard relative properties. And the relatives differentiated are soft relative properties. What's the difference between hard and soft relatives? Well, the hard relatives are ones that are just grounded in the relation, that have the property just because it's grounded in the relation, whereas the soft relative properties is grounded in the relation and something else. So, sweet is a soft relative property because it's got to be uh, it's grounded in the relation that the sugar bears to my tongue, but also the chemical structure of the sugar. That's the non relative property that it that it has that is also grounds the 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 relative property, whereas the hard relative properties are ones that you can have just in virtue of the uh, relation so being a father you don't need anything else you just need to bear the as a father of relation to something so that's the kind of exactly so this is so this is one objection to the mapping hard this is one exact objection to this reading of the of the Stoics right because it seems like hard relatives uh, that the examples don't quite fit because a father doesn't seem to be a father just in virtue of bearing the relation to the offspring. It also needs some intrinsic sub-non-relational property being male. So the hard relative, soft relative contrast doesn't quite fit with the examples of stoic relatives that Simplicius gives. So yeah, that's where that's kind of where I've I come in and I try to say, well, actually we can make better sense of this with invoking constitutive relativity because it seems like the, the relatives somehow disposed like father, well, they're going to be, first of all, they're not properties at all. Simplicius doesn't talk about them as, as relative properties, he talks about them as relatives. And constitutive relativity, of course, focuses on relatives rather than relative properties. But also it seems as though uh, to be a father yeah, you, being a father is just constituted by bearing the as a father of relation, or the, the father is constituted by bearing the as father of relation to uh, some offspring. And then the sweet and the bitter, well, they're, they have a, they're constituted by having a power to act in a certain kind of way. And that's how I take the, the relatives, uh, the differentiated relatives. The sweet and the bitter have a power to act in relation to each other. So the, the sweet has a power to sweeten the bitter. The bitter has a power to be sweetened by uh the, the bitter has a power to embitten, I guess, or embitter the sweet and so on. So that's how I cash out the distinction that, that simplifies reports on the style.
1: Um okay. Um <laughs> uh, that, is perhaps... that a lot? Yeah no no, <laughs> no um I was just thinking of some you know oddnesses of it. You know, one would think that the um the the correlative of, of the sweet um you know it it wouldn't it wouldn't be the bitter it's it's not really yeah it's, it's it's not it's not like larger you know the correlative of the larger is clearly the smaller um uh but it, it's not entirely clear that the correlative of the sweet ought to be the bitter those are yeah the, exactly yeah i think partly
2: that's partly that's to do with how we think about sensation because often ancient philosophers think of sensation as uh, as kind of a correspondence between two powers. So if I taste something sweet, it, that's because my tongue is bitter relative to the thing that I'm tasting. So my tongue is bitterer than the sugar, so the contrast is what makes me taste the sweetness. Rather like if I put my hand in some warm water, the water feels warm because the water is warmer than my hand. So I think that's where the sweet-bitter... Kind of the sweet and bitter comes in because they have these powers and those powers act in relation to each other the sweet acts on the bitter to make the subject of the the subject of the taste taste sweet um, and then that really does that that correlation between powers does some work in stoic physics um, the relationship between the kind of active principle and the passive principle constituting material objects for the stoics uh, I talk a little bit about that as well. But I must say that those chapters on the Stoics are the most tricky, I think, in the book. The, what's going on with the Stoics and relativity is really difficult to determine. Um, and there are lots, like you say, of, of philosophical issues, but also lots of very difficult textual issues to contend with all at the same time. So I found writing
1: those chapters actually the, the hardest <laughs> of the book. Mm. Right. Um, so so the, the last group... Um... Uh, the Peronian skeptics, right, who, who represented uh, uh, so often by Sextus Empiricus. Um, so uh, there, you, know, you sort of make the, you know, the whole idea of relativity, you know, kind of take center stage for them, right? Um, can you can you explain their uh, their uh, view and and the role it plays in their o- overall philosophy?
2: Yeah, yeah, I feel like. Um... I hope people who are reading the book uh, for the information on the, se- on the skeptics don't feel shortchanged. I'd had planned to write rather more about relativity and skepticism in the end, and it ended up being being one chapter. I mean, for, for the Peronian skeptics, the relativity is really really important to that overall skeptical program, right? So Sextus gives these Anisodemon modes and the Agrippan modes, and relativity is is one in each kind of class. These modes are sort of Ways of arguing that will always unseat the dogmatist, and they're a key part of the kind of skeptical skill or the skeptical practice that that, the, that uh, Sextus envisions this Peronian going around engaging in. Um, so he really makes relativity centre stage. I think the way that he thinks about relativity is a very close relation to to the constitutive relativity, but rather he frames it in terms of conce- of, of conceptual terms. So he, he wants to say that, well, uh, we conceive of something as relative to something else to its relative to its correlative. So we must conceive of a brother as relative to a sibling. We must conceive of a parent as relative to a child. I think he makes that move because he doesn't want to be committed to any particular ontology, right? So we've been talking in constitutive terms about the constituting relations for these relata, but Sextus doesn't want to put his feet down on any of those because of his skepticism. So he, he moves to this conceptual level and says, well, when we conceive of relatives, we must also conceive of them as relating to their, their kind of corresponding relative. And the way that I, in the book, really talk about how he puts this conception to use is in his skeptical attacks on different, what he calls dogmatic concepts. So these are concepts that are key to different dogmatic schools, for instance, um, the sign signified relationship is a really key epistemic notion for both stoics but also for epicureans and so sextus wants to say well actually if you think about the concept of a sign it's a relative concept but when you think about it it's going to be epistemically useless because precisely because it's a kind of conceptual relative and his argument i mean his argument isn't very good but it's something like this um, if I recognise that something is a sign, I'm conceiving it as a, as a sign. In order to conceive of something as a sign, I have to conceive of it as having a correlative. But if I'm conceiving it as having a correlative, I already know what the correlative is—the thing signified. So by 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 encountering a sign, I can't get any new knowledge because just by encountering something as a sign, I've already encountered the thing that it signifies. Um, now that seems wrong for the for the obvious reason that. Well, I, yeah, to conceive of something as a sign, I have to conceive of it as signifying something, but I don't already have, don't have to know what it signifies, right? Um, just as I conceive of some smoke as a sign doesn't mean I conceive of it. Uh, I, I already know what the fire is, what, what kind of thing the fire is, whether it's a chemical fire or a house fire or anything like that. So just in virtue of conceiving of something as a sign, yeah, I know it, has a, a signif- it signifies something, but I don't know what it signifies. So Sextus' arguments for that scepticism aren't great, but that's the kind of way he deploys kind of relativity to try to undermine dogmatism. He, he tries to undermine these important relative concepts that dogmatists have, like signs, like causation, like proof, and so on, and tries to use his, his ideas of relativity to undermine them like that.
1: So it sounds like a kind of a nominalism. actually. that so would that be yeah. correct?
2: Yeah. That it, it is quite nominalistic, exactly. Um, he's, Sextus is, is definitely moving in that sort of direction, um, precisely because he doesn't want to be a realist about these kind of abstract things, uh, abstract objects. However, I mean, with, with everything with, with the Peronian sceptics, you have to caveat it by saying, well, maybe nominalism is a philosophical position, and if you're a Peronian sceptic, you're going to want to abjure that as well so it's very difficult mm-hmm. to kind of pin them down um as a make pin them down and make them consistent uh so really any c- claims about attributing sextus particular philosophical views is going to be controversial and a lot of the pushback i had when i was working on the book was was like well you're attributing to sextus a view of relativity here but he's meant to not have any philosophical views mm-hmm, mm-hmm. not meant to have any right. philosophical views so how can he have those and the answer is I'm not sure but he's got to have something because he's arguing all over the place.
1: <laughs> right, right, right. It's just maybe the skepticism just isn't uh, entirely uh consistent or something. Um but but if it's not uh, you know I mean so he he kind of goes to a semantic or conceptual level in a way. Um so how you know so when we started it was of course constitutive relativity the idea is ontologically bizarre um (laughs) uh what what's the corresponding bizarreness of the conceptual relativity yeah
2: i think it's that you that you get the as it were content of the correlative for free that's what's weird about it so that argument i sketched about signs and signified Sextus seems to be assuming that just because I'm thinking of a sign I'm also thinking of the thing that is signified but that's not obviously correct so just as conceiving of something as a sign doesn't mean I conceive of what it signifies although of course I conceive of it as signifying something so that's I think where his view go that's I think where his view is correspondingly weird right that that just in virtue of knowing the relative you also know Precisely which correlative you're thinking of just because so just because for example, I know that um just because I know that ten is larger than something, I conceive of ten as a larger number, well it doesn't follow that I 'm conceiving of it as larger than any particular number, like five or three or one, something like that, but Sextus seems committed to that that I am thinking of it as larger than some particular some particular smaller number, yeah, so that's I think the weird the corresponding weirdness. <laughs> for his view yeah yeah good
1: um well let me uh you know you you mentioned that you the there is only one you know despite the the prominence of of ideas of relativity and the skeptics there's only one one chapter of the book in that um are you you know are you working on f- furthering that particular aspect or um are you Looking at other things entirely. I mean, what's what's on your plate at the moment? You know, following the publication of this book. Well, I mean, what
2: on my plate? Uh, well, in terms of research, what's on my plate is actually a more another shorter book on on relativity, but more on relative change. So actually, that came up with the Stoics. But I've got uh, just finishing off a shorter study of relative change in Plato, Aristotle. Uh, the sceptics and, and the Stoics, and how they think about that. So there is more stuff on how sexist thinks about, about uh, relativity in that. Um, but just because of their constitutive view, these guys are quite puzzled by cases of relative change, cases like like the one, as I mentioned, where I can become shorter even though I don't shrink. So I've got some something coming out on that. Um, and there is, I mean, there's lots and lots more that there's lots of more projects that you could do on ancient relativity. You could look at uh, ancient ideas of uh, relational logic, uh, how they thought about inferences involving relativity, because that became a really big issue in the 19th century, uh, a really big problem for kind of Aristotelian logic. Uh, but you could look at how ancient philosophers thought about ancient uh, relativity. You could also think of more about relativism in the context of, of uh Of of skepticism of uh, ancient relativity, but I've been yeah I've been just doing that stuff on relative change. I've just also signed a book contract with a colleague in Brazil, Luca and We're doing a book on uh, infinite regress arguments, um, a kind of edited volume on that. And yeah, personally, I'm yeah about to undergo a significant relative change because I'm about to have a kid. So (laughs) that's I think going to be the next big (laughs) project.
1: Um, Wow, wow. Better get those books out of the way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Uh, Well, congratulations on that. Um, Thank you very much. um, Yeah. Uh, So we are, we're just about out of time. Um, Is there anything further that you wanted to mention about the book that I, that, that we didn't get to, that I didn't ask about?
2: No, I think I think we I think we covered most of it. I think that's that's really good. I just wanted to say, yeah, thanks again. It's been uh, it's been really fun. I hope it was I hope it was I hope it made some sense. I know that the views are quite alien, but I try to try to make them at least comprehensible. I don't pretend to make them plausible, but at least sort of yeah.
1: <laughs> right, well, that's, that's difficult, especially when you're working with with you know often fragmentary um, texts you know yeah. t- to be with. But um well I appreciate you taking the time to uh, to talk about your book. Um, it's, no it I was, really appreciate it having great, me on. It's always it's always fun to delve into um ancient yeah. metaphysics, at least at least for me. <laughs> hopefully for my for our listeners. Yeah. Um, but uh yeah so so thanks again for, for joining New Books in and Philosophy and, and uh I wish you luck with, with your, you know your book and baby projects. (laughs) Thank you very much. Thanks. (laughs) Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to my interview with Matthew Dunco, Assistant Professor of Philosophy at the University of Nottingham. We've been talking about his new book, Ancient Relativity, Plato, Aristotle, Stoics, and Skeptics, which is just out from Oxford University Press. I'm Carrie Figdor. This is New Books in Philosophy. I hope you enjoyed the podcast and thank you for listening.